0: Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gones-Malka. Welcome to Humanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Join us for a special compilation of select programs from the last year. We hope to inspire you through the words of three remarkable women that have succeeded in their respective fields. Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Owila, the Director General of the World Trade Organization, shares landmarks in her career and about opening spaces for women. The High Commissioner of Jamaica to South Africa, Joan Thomas Edwards, encourages people to live their authentic selves and to recognize that various seasons of life will demand a different focus. Gender equality is gaining ground through legislation and activism. Constitutional Court Judge Justice Teron discusses gender transformation in the judiciary and gives some insight into her life as someone who has risen beyond the circumstances that she was born into. Our first guest in this feature is Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Owila. Currently, she serves as Director General of the World Trade Organization. She is the first woman and first African to do so. Previously, Dr. Okonjo-Owila twice served as Nigeria's Finance Minister and briefly acted as Foreign Minister in 2006. She was the first woman to hold both positions. She walks us through some of the milestones in her life. Growing up in Nigeria during a civil war, working in roles that fulfill her dream of always doing something that has a positive impact on people's lives and leading from the front, opening doors for women.
1: <laughs>
2: well, thank you so much uh, for having me. Um, well, when I was growing up in Nigeria, I grew up in first in the village with my Grandmother, my parents both got scholarships to Germany as young students, and they left me with my grandmother when I was age one and went to study so um, when they came back they, they they had studied economics. my father studied economics, my mother sociology, and they became academics when they came back. So what happened was I went to of course, when they came back after about nine years, I went to live with them. Uh, so it was, it was a, a very interesting experience because in the village, I lived the village life. And I really think it taught me a lot with my grandmother, fetching ver- water from the stream because we had no running water in the house, going to the farm, doing all the things. And I think that really kind of built my background and character. Fast forward when my parents come back, my situation changes completely. I go to live live with them in the academic environment. And that's when the issues of economics and finance, uh, you know, from my father's side began to take hold. Now, I must tell you that when I looked at the economics books that he was using to prepare his lectures, they looked so boring. And I said to myself, I'll never study economics. (laughs) And so it it is really surprising that I did. As you said, during part of my childhood, we had the Nigeria Biafra War, the Nigerian Civil War, from the time I was age 12 to 15, um, where my parents lost everything and had to start afresh. Uh, Again, that sort of helped build my backbone to, to in the sense that if you add that to my village life, I learned that you could live with very little in life. You don't need too many material things. So I always joke that I can sleep on the floor, uh, uh, cold stone floor, whatever, mud floor, as well as on a bed. And it's all the same to me because of this experience. But then all that, had, you just factored in that later, even though I was resisting studying economics because... I thought it was boring when I saw it as a child. Um, I later found that this is really a field that can give me the kind of grounding in finance and economics that would help policy changes that could really lead to better things to improve people's lives. So that's what led me into that field. If you want to, to have a big policy impact, in a developing country, on people's lives. What's the, a good field to go into? I think it's finance and economics.
0: Absolutely, and you were Nigeria's finance minister for two terms, so dealing with policy, and uh, it also had a period of being foreign minister. Can you walk us through some of the significant milestones in your career?
2: Wow. First, let me say that I I am so grateful to God uh, that I've had a very interesting and amazing career. I want people to know I didn't target being a finance minister. What I wanted to do was be a development economist, trying to make policy and uh, work on programs and projects that would help poor people in developing countries. But And I did that. So I was at the World Bank, for 25 years uh, of my career, and I had the privilege of working in regions all over the world, really, and um, in fields like agriculture, in in, in macroeconomics, in you know uh, urban development, really across the board, learning so much, um, and even in debt management and, and fiscal issues, as I said, in macroeconomics. I think that prepared me that at a time when my president, President Obasanjo at the time, in 2003, was looking for someone to help with managing the debt of the country, he got a recommendation that told him that there's this Nigerian woman at the World Bank who seems to know something about this issue. And uh, so he asked me if I would help. And I initially went to a a leave of absence of six months or so to to go and help just even systematize the debt numbers because they were all over the place. And at that time, I created the debt management office, which still endures till today, computerized our debt so you could. We really have a handle at the press of a button. How much do we owe? Who do we owe it to? And what's the debt service? Subsequent to that, when he was looking for a finance minister in his second term, that was when he asked for me to come and be the finance minister. So he just built on work that I had done earlier. And that was a big milestone. I, I look back on that. I always joke again that nobody loves being finance minister. I did it for several years in two terms. And it's very hard uh, because nobody likes you. Your colleagues don't like you <laughs> because you, they see you as the obstacle to their getting more, uh, more resources. Sometimes your boss doesn't like you because you have to say no. So that was, but it was a big milestone because we were able to do so many reforms. We were able to triple the growth of the economy from about 2.3% to 6%. We were able to fight corruption. And so I regarded, it clear the debts, $30 billion uh, uh, external debt of the, of the country, that was such a drag. Uh, and we didn't have money to pay. We also got rid of that. So that was a big milestone um and and then after that um i um had the opportunity to go back to the world bank to the number 2 position as managing director operations and um from there when i left um i went back to the to my country as finance minister for the second time and then uh, after that i left and i went to become chair of gavi there Vaccine Alliance for five years and from there came to the WTO. So uh, uh, what I want to say is that all these jobs have enabled me really to fulfill my dream of always doing something that has an impact, a, a material impact on people's lives, trying to change them for the better.
0: These have incredible impact. The other area that always concerns me is the fact that we have so few women occupying leadership positions. As a female leader, can you please share your perspective on women in leadership as almost this top-down force to help drive the gender equality agenda?
2: Well, thank you. I I think, as you say, let's acknowledge there's been some progress in trying to get women into leadership positions, but it's not enough. And everybody agrees it's not enough. And you know all the statistics, you know, it it will, according to the World Economic Forum and others, to take us 132 years the way we are going uh, to to attain gender uh, equality. Actually, it was 100 years that we had the pandemic and that threw us back to 132. So a long way to go, but I think having... Women leaders means that if you're a woman leader, you have specific, you know, specific responsibility to try and use the position you're in and the, to, to bring other women in, to mentor, to open the door. And I've tried to do that myself consistently through my career. And I think you can find many places women who have been mentored and, and you know, uh, helped on. Uh, so that they themselves can become leaders. But more importantly is to ask the question, in the organization you're leading, how are you setting the exam? How are you opening spaces for women? And I can tell you at the WTO, the first thing I did was my senior management team, that is my deputies, this is the first time the WTO has had 50%. There are four deputies. This is the first time 50% have been women. So two women, two men. I insisted on that when I came in. But the important thing is these women also competed. They are highly qualified. And it's important to insist that merit must be front and center. But people, people so I want people to know that saying there should be women doesn't mean that the women are there without merit. Women are capable, they compete, and they get picked. So, and I've also tried to increase the next layer of management. There were 22% of women among the 20 directors. We're now at 43% since I came. I've been here two years. So, I'm trying to walk the talk. I'm trying to open the space for women, and we'll continue to do that in this organization and lending my voice to opening the door anywhere else around the world. I think this is the best way we can help leadership to develop.
0: And that's exactly it, being able to create those opportunities. Yes, absolutely, people have to be qualified to take on those roles. But if the door is closed, they don't have access. And I think this is one of the, the attributes that when you're at the top, you've got the power, you've got the resources, and you can create those opportunities and spaces. That was Dr. Ngozi okonjo iweala Director General of the World Trade Organization. We welcome your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Women are multidimensional, and many of us contend with numerous responsibilities that sometimes compete for time. Moving to the Caribbean, our next guest is the High Commissioner of Jamaica to South Africa, Joan Thomas Edwards, who shares a few guidelines and her lived experiences, emphasizing the wisdom to know yourself, to know your tribe, and what season of life you are in. I have to ask you this. You already mentioned that you've got three children. You have a husband. You're learning to ride a bike. You are <laughs> representing your country across 19 countries in Southern and Eastern Africa. What are some of the tools that you use to help fulfill your ambitions, but also manage all of these
1: responsibilities? Well, let me tell you, it's not, it's not easy. I cannot sit here and tell you that I have a script. It's something that day by day, I just have to ask the Lord for guidance. I find, though. I learned this lesson very early, or, or within the last twelve years. I learned this lesson from a former minister of mine. He said to me, Joe, when you're in life, there are three priorities that you have. First priority, when you're a young person growing up, is your academics. You must try to excel, excel in your schoolwork, and do well. Then, when you begin the working world, the next priority you have." is career and your career development. Then, when you get, if you have a family, the next priority is your family. Which one is the most important? And he says, you think you have different milestones at different times, and everything has a place at certain times. so you have to understand the time. And if now is the time for family, now is the time for family. So family must be the centre first now at this point and then the other things you work around that so I use that as a guide for example when I started a family I took a break from the ministry three years I was away you have to make those decisions sometimes you have to make some tough decisions but you you need to know what season you're in so this now is the season for family there was a time um, 20 years ago it was a season for building career. Now is a season of family. So you take decisions based on the season that you're in. So my season now is family. I took three years off in 2015, 20, thereabouts, to deal with um, 2012, 20, thereabouts, to deal with family issues. I took a sabbatical away with my husband. I went to Belize. And even then, they did call me to do some work there. That's when I did the legal work. But we were there together with the family. Young, young family at the time. So you have to take those kind of decisions. So it's not, it's not easy. And some people may choose that they don't want to have the family first. That's their choice. But I believe that you can have them all. <laughs> but it's just a matter of the choices you make when you make them. And sometimes in um, my job is a lot of traveling. I may decide, all right, for this, this next trip, I might try to do it remotely. Why not do a remote thing? And delay so that you can be there for their graduation. Why can't I delay so that I can be there to, to do a little play date with them? Why can't I delay a bit? Because you'll never capture these moments again, you know. You'll never. The career opportunities, I think they will come again. Hey, eh? you know, or if it doesn't come now, don't feel that, oh I have to I have to have it now. I've got to I've got to be an eye commissioner now, 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 no, no. If you it's all it's all in your mind. You have to understand the season you're in. The time and what's important. So that that's the message that I will really, really give you. It's a powerful
0: message, and I really appreciate that you you shared that because it it comes from the heart. It comes through your lived experiences, and it's a it's a reality check. I, I love the view of the seasons of your life. It's not what's happening in someone else's life. What's happening in a ministry it's the seasons of your life what's important for you and thinking about those stages those advice elements That's of right. focus on your academics then focus on your career then family becomes important it's that that fusion yes so uh, high commissioner we've just spoken about some of your ingredients that you use as as a coping mechanism can you please tell us about a few women who've been
1: important change agents in jamaica there are so many, but I'll, I'll pick out a few. In the Foreign Service itself, I'll, I'll pick out one person who was a role model to me when I was growing up. She's the one who guided me. Her name is, she's now deceased. Her name is Ambassador Patricia Durant. She was a trailblazer in terms of a career Foreign Service officer and an ambassador. And she, I grew up with her tutelage. So I, I was one of her disciples. So I learned a lot from her. He had to break the glass ceiling was because at the time the Foreign Service was not one that it was rather male-dominated. So to become an ambassador during the early 70s, and so it was not easy. So I I, I always start with that, say that I build on the shoulders of those who went before me, the women who went before. Ambassador Carmen Paris also deceased. First female ambassador to me, and this Patricia Durant. Presently, those living. We have our own foreign minister, who is the first female foreign minister. So that's quite an achievement. And we quite admire the fact that we have a woman champion. The first female prime minister was also um, Portia Simpson-Miller. She broke the glass ceiling in 2006 when she became the first female. And she served twice as prime minister. So those, when I look at the, the lives of all those ladies, they have really helped to shape me. But fundamental to that is looking at my own mother. <laughs> my mother, I would call a regular citizen, not necessarily, but somebody who inculcated the values that I have. So she's somebody, I'm thankful that she's still with me and um, still able to, to help me in many ways. But she's a strong woman, one who can't who is confident in herself, and you must always know yourself and know your own views, and not be guided by other people. So through her, I also developed a strong sense of identity. So <clears throat> I, I share a little story now. And I, I know I'm digressing, but this is peer pressure. I learned that I should be my own self. When I was going to school, at high school, I got a pair of shoes from an aunt. Now, my it was a dear aunt of mine. But when I got the shoes, I noticed they were both the same color black, but there were two different shoes. One left, one right. Well, I decided at the wee age of 12, 30, that I'm still going to wear the shoes to school. So I said, why are you going to wear the shoes? I'm going to laugh at you. I said, I don't care. I'm wearing my shoes. And I wore my shoes to school. They laughed at me. And after a while, I laughed back with them. And after a while, they stopped teasing. So that's one lesson. My mother allowed me to do it. I just don't. To be I like the shoes. But the lesson there is have an individual thought. Don't allow yourself to be swayed and by others. And the peer pressure thing, you have to rise above that. So those are my lessons. that <laughs> okay, I have to learn from strong women in my life. Because to succeed, you really have to have a strong sense of self. But sometimes you, it's, it's a lonely road
0: what are some of the things that you've found have helped you attain that sense of self?
1: Well, I believe it's my faith. primarily, As I grew in faith and understood my purpose in life, that's helped me, that helped to steer me to know that God had a path for me. Here's a plan. And I just need to stick to that plan. It, so you can't, you have to drown out the maddening noise. Everybody has, a different plan for you, so that's another thing. If you're not a strong person, people will define who you should be. People will look at you and say, "Oh, you're so," or "You're from that class in life, so therefore you can only rise today." People told me when I was doing when I was doing some of the things that I told you I did. I told us, crazy. how are you going to take three years off the time in your career where you're going to be taken off? Why are you going to be taken off? If I followed people, why did you want to get married?" You know, being single is better, but you know, you know you hear all sorts of things. So you have to know what God is saying to you, and that I uh, know His purpose, and that will build. It. That is what has helped to, to steer my uh, my focus. So you have to keep focused and surround yourself with people who are equally focused. Too. If you surround yourself with the wrong people, you will be misguided, and that's where you need God's wisdom to tell you who to trust who to do. So, I have been very privileged. I've had some very good people in my life. Some of my deceased now, a very dear friend, Carol Kirk. we served together in Washington. She's now passed on. But she was an excellent role model for me and one who could speak into my life and say, Joan, if you're going on the wrong path, that's not right. Uh, look there. So Somebody like her. So God places different people in your life at different times. I mentioned some of the other role models, but there is my mother coming up, um, strong aunts, my family, but strong women, that's how they are, and very accomplished, and um, other professionals who I saw, and I modeled some of them.
0: Thank you for sharing some of those insights and the, the, the strength in yourself as an individual, and also still at the same time being receptive to taking the right form of wisdoms as opposed to
1: being, um, I don't know, curtailed by. A clone. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be a clone. I tell other people, do not be a clone. You must not be a clone of other people. It happens all the time because it's very easy to fit in. Why do you want to stick out like a sore thumb and hear that? Oh, oh, you're a pariah because so and so. When you check it out, sometimes some of the people who are being ostracized, sometimes they are definite, they're forging their own path, and because they do not fit into the mold, you are ostracized. It happens. And I I can speak from experience. You don't fit into the mold, so you, you hear all sorts of things about yourself. You hear, oh, you, are, you lack emotional intelligence or, you you know, all sorts of things that you cannot measure or are quite subjective, you know. But you have to be careful. You have to have that wisdom to know, to know yourself.
0: That was the High Commissioner of Jamaica to South Africa, Joan Thomas Edwards. You're welcome to post your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Legislation has been instrumental in changing the world to recognize women's rights. Part of that process concerns the people who meet out the law. Our next guest is Justice Leona Taron, who is a judge of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. She articulates why she, together with her co-founders, founded the South African chapter of the International Association of Women's Judges as a vehicle to increase the number of women judges and promote equal justice for women and girls throughout the world. Justice to run is living proof that the situation one is born into does not dictate their future And she shares how her father's vision for her propelled her to rise above her circumstances. Everything is about an evolution and what may have been right at one point in time has to shift and adapt to the next
3: stage. Yes, yes.
0: You were also a founding member of the South African chapter of the International Association of Women's Judges. Why did you
3: and your colleagues feel the need to establish a South African chapter? Um, Let me start off answering that question with a quote from a person that I admired greatly, the the late and great Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she said, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. And I think the chapter adheres to those values. And it was founded in 1991 as a nonprofit, non-governmental organization that brings together judges from all levels in the judiciary worldwide the founders of the international association began with the vision of increasing the number of women judges and promoting equal justice for women and girls throughout the world. So the transformation that we need and we have seen in our judiciary, it's not unique to South Africa worldwide. There was a problem where women were underrepresented on the bench. Now in 1994, and that was not long ago. And this might surprise you and might surprise the listeners. There were only two women judges in South Africa. The one was Judge Leonora van den Hiefer and Judge J- Jeanette Traverso. That can never be justified in any society. Two women judges in 1994. And when we established the chapter and we were inaugurating it, then President Thabo Mbeki spoke at our inaugural session. And he noted that the transition to a genuine democracy in South Africa requires that we put an end to the underrepresentation of women in the judiciary. So, one of the vital objectives of the local chapter was the attainment of gender equality in the judiciary as a feature of democracy, just as we need a transformation in terms of race. So we need transformation in terms of gender. And one may ask, why should the judiciary be transformed? After 1994, our constitutional order was replaced by a regime which whose oppressive laws had caused untold harm to many and the majority of South African people. Many black South Africans were subjected to forced removals, detention without trial. The laws were devised to keep black people oppressed and in a position of subservience. The courts were drawn into the process, as we know, of enforcing apartheid, and they had to interpret and apply laws that supported discrimination and oppression. So in the eyes of people who were subjected to these unjust laws, the courts were a part of that system of oppression. And our former deputy chief justice said, and these words are so true. He said, justice had a white unwelcoming face with black victims at the receiving end of unjust laws. Now, we can also say and apply that to gender. Justice must not be seen to be meted out only by males because people in appearing in our courts are males and females. So we need a judiciary that reflects the diversity of the people that it serves. And this supports the rule of law. And as you know, we don't achieve anything. We don't achieve change, we don't achieve goals if we don't work towards it. And the establishment of the chapter was to hasten the process of transformation of the judiciary. Race, Gender and class serve as intersecting factors that put women in a particularly vulnerable situation. I speak from my own experience. I know I've risen above my circumstances, but my first roadblock was that I was Black. My second roadblock was that I was a woman. So it was obstacles that I had to overcome and the obstacles that I've overcome are still in place for so many women. But in view of these aspects of obstacles, which are a
0: hundred, hundred percent real, these are your identity. You can't change your
3: race. You can't change your gender. No, we can't. We can't. And let me add, I wouldn't want to. Speaking for me personally, I'm a woman, I'm black. But I've lived and I am living a wonderful life. I don't I don't want to be changed into a man. I accept that I'm a woman and I can do my best as a woman. But I need government support. I need society support. And I am one of many women who have risen above my circumstances. But there are so many who have not. I'm very active in the Wentworth community where I come from. Often I go there and I participate in workshops, but it also saddens me when, I'm, when I am there because I manage to escape that cycle of violence, of drug abuse, of woman abuse, of teenage pregnancy. But there are still so many who are trapped in that cycle. How did you escape? What were those elements? I have to say that it started with my parents. Um, I recently watched the movie King Richard, where King Richard had mapped out a program for his two daughters, even before they were born. He mapped out the program that they would be champions, Wimbledon champions. Um, I have a similar story at a different level, of course, not, not, not Wimbledon champion. When I was five years old, my father decided that I would go to university. At that stage, we were living in Wentworth. The only university open to brown people like me was the University of the Western Cape. The predominant language of the Western Cape at the time was Afrikaans. And my father said, if I wanted to go to university that was predominantly Afrikaans in Afrikaans region, I had to learn to speak Afrikaans. So he enrolled me in the only Afrikaans medium school in Durban for brown people when I was five years old. So my career, my future started being mapped out when I was five years old. And I like to use the story, particularly when I'm speaking to people in Wentworth. Recently, there was a father's workshop and I said to the fathers, what is your vision for your children? Write out your vision for your children. My father had a vision. I would go to university and start implementing that vision. As soon as your children are born, implement the vision. Venus and Serena's father had the vision before they were born. And I say to people, I was an ordinary five-year-old child in Wentworth. Nothing special about me. But my father said, this is the vision he has for me. And this is the path we're going to follow to reach that vision. From the age of five, I knew that I'm going to university. I had no idea what a university was. I had no idea what anyone did at a university, but I knew I'm going to a university. And I think that was the start of the foundation that was built for me. And I had parents who worked hard, parents who protected me from the social ills of my environment. I had parents who kept me busy. They took me to church. One of the institutions in a community like winter. church is free. It takes your time. It occupies you. And that's what church did for me. Church instilled a love of music in me. From a young age, I learned to play the piano. Church instilled with me certain disciplines and values. And all of that did not require money. And I think parents of today can do the same. There are so many organizations that work with children, that work with women, and they supported the NGOs. And if we can get involved, and there are still so many churches as well. Oh. And, and I think that that was the foundation for my future success. That's an incredible
0: story. And I love the parallels demonstrating that this is something that the parents can do for their kids. So, Starting in the mindset, university at age five, you went on to get your BA, LLB degrees from University of KZN and an LLM from Georgetown University in the United States, where you studied as a Fulbright Scholar. You were appointed to the bench in 1999, becoming the first black woman judge at the KZN KwaZulu Natal High Court. At age 32, you were also the youngest judge to have been appointed in South Africa at the time massive achievements and several firsts. You've shared the dynamics of how it began. What impact do you think becoming a judge has had on your family and
3: your Wentworth community? Um, Let me just go a step back. I was the first person in my mother's family and in my father's family to pass my trick. And at that stage, when you pass matric, your name would be in the newspaper. I still become emotional. When my name was in the newspaper, you would swear we had won the jackpot. (laughs) Wow. Yes. And it was my family. It was the extended community. It was almost the whole of Wentworth that was around us there, that was celebrating because... Um, it was an achievement for our community. And I think it was a recognition that other children can achieve that as well. And that's the important thing that I like to say. And I know I'm concentrating on Wednesday, but it's because I, I, I often get invited to come back there and I'm happy to do so. And I say, I was, yeah, I walked these dusty streets. My mother and my grandmother would send us to our neighbors to go borrow our onion or to borrow a tomato. I don't think we ever we ever gave it back. So there was nothing exceptional about me, but I was able to do so. And I say to them, you can do it too, with the right support, with the right attitude. I think my appointment as a judge provided the youth, it provided the aged, it provided mothers and fathers with hope. It provided them with inspiration. It provided them with with, with an opportunity to say if Leona can do it, we can try to let our children do it as well. And you would not believe the success stories like 10 or 20 years later when somebody would meet me and say, you know, that day you spoke the, you touched my heart that day. I changed my life and I went to study, even though I was 30 years old, I decided to pursue my goals. And that's why I continue to do what I do outside of my work as a judge. If I can impact one person in one speech or one lecture or one workshop that I attend. I feel so good about that. And I believe I have a duty and people in my position also have a duty to do that because that is how we change our society one by one by one. So becoming a judge has had, I think, a huge impact on my family, on the community in a positive way.
0: Inspiring words from Justice Taron. We hope that this compilation encourages you to pursue your best. Warm wishes for the festive season from Womanity.